Well, good evening. How are you this evening? Oh, you're much better than the morning. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's being tired or you're super excited. I'll take super excited. Well, listen, we have a lot of work to do this evening. And so I do want to just dive into scripture with you. But before I do that, I do want to tell you a few things. Some of the things I'm going to share with you this evening are going to be offensive to some of you. And that's okay, because the gospel is offensive. And I would not be loving you well if I did not teach you the whole truth, the whole counsel of God's word. And so that's what I aim to do this morning. That's what I aim to do every time I preach. The, the gospel, God's word, brings us refreshment. It brings us comfort, comfort. But often, in an effort to transform us, God will use his word to make us uncomfortable. And this morning, some of us, if not all of us, will be made uncomfortable. And so my encouragement to you is just to be open to what God has to say to you this evening. I've got one rule when it comes to preaching. And it's really this, I think I've shared it with you before. I will never preach a word to you that I have not first preached to my own heart. And so this message is as much, if not more, for me as it is for you. I believe God speaks through his word. And I believe that he has something to say to each one of us, to you and to me this evening. If only we would pay attention. And so what I want to do is to begin our time together just by going to God. And so uh, I, I want to give you a few moments just in the quietness of your heart to talk to God. And if I could, I would offer you this prayer. And it's simply this. God, help me to be open to what you have to say to me this evening. God, help me to be open to what you have to say to me this evening. I'll give you a few moments to pray that, and then I'll pray for us and we'll get started. Well, Father, we do come before you this evening, and we believe your word is living and active, and we thank you that you desire to speak to us. And so, Lord, I ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that would love and obey you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as many of you may know, I was born and raised in the New York, New Jersey area, and so I bleed East Coast. Everything about me screams East Coast. It's in the way I talk, it's in the way I walk, it's in everything about me. But friends, you have been converting me. <laughs> hey, let's not go that far, hold on. <laughs> I recently decided to put down some roots in Texas, and so I bought a home right here in Irving. And I invested in this house with my best friend, Mary. And, and here's the thing, when you buy a house, you don't just put down money on the house, you then have to put down more money on furniture and decor and all of that. And so Mary, who's of Indian descent, just like me, Mary and I went furniture shopping for some living room furniture a few months ago. And we went to a popular furniture store. And so we walked into the store, and there were about three or four salespeople, all white men and women, standing around waiting for customers to come in. 
And so we walked in and we began looking around. And, and during that time, there were about four other customers who came in. All of them were white and all of them were immediately helped by these salespeople. Yet here we were walking around for 20 minutes. No one looked at us. No one said a single word to us. Now, to be honest, it's not all that unusual for me, especially here in Texas. And so I just chalked it up to this is just the way it is. And I wasn't going to make a big deal about it. But not Mary, <laughs> who happens to be here this evening. Uh, <laughs> but if you know Mary, she's one of the kindest, she's the kindest, gentlest, most loving person I know. But Mary got all riled up. And she marched up to this salesperson and she said, listen, we've been here for 20 minutes. Mary's also from Brooklyn. We've been here for 20 minutes and no one has helped us. And so he said he would get someone to help us. And a few minutes later, an African-American saleswoman came out and she was incredibly uh, helpful and knowledgeable and she helped us get the furniture we needed. Here's my point in telling you that story. No one said anything that was overtly racist or discriminatory to us. But we were discriminated against, most likely because of our ethnicity, but perhaps also because of our gender. Here's another one. A few months ago, I went shopping with one of my best friends, uh, who is a white woman, and we went to a clothing store, a women's clothing store, and we walked in together, and immediately the white saleswoman began talking to my friend, asking how she could help her. She never looked me in the eye. She never said a single word to me. She only spoke to my white friend. Now again, it's not all that shocking to me. And I just thought, well, it's just the way it is because that's often how it is when we're together in public. But the entire time we were in that store, the saleswoman never asked me if I needed help, never said a single word to me, never even looked at me. In fact, my friend began asking for sizes and clothes for me from that saleswoman. Again, she never said anything that was overtly racist or discriminatory to me. But the fact that she never looked at me in the eye, never said a single word to me, leads me to believe that I was discriminated against. One more story. A few weeks ago, I went to get my eyebrows done. Now, I know I make it look easy, but it takes a lot of work to make this happen. <laughs> So don't be fooled. <laughs> I went to get my eyebrows done. And the place I go to is owned and operated by Indian women. And so I walked into the salon and uh, the technician looked up. She was working on another woman. She looked up, she smiled at me, acknowledged me. And there was already another, uh, a young white woman waiting. And so I signed in and I waited. And finally she was done. The technician was done with the woman she was working on. And so she looked up at me. Now, she, had, she knew when I had walked in. She was well aware that this young white woman was already there. But we locked eyes. And in that moment, there was almost this understanding between us that we both recognized that we were Indian and that she was going to give me first preference. And so she called me over to her chair. And in that moment, everything in me wanted to jump into that chair because finally, bias and prejudice was going to work out for me. <laughs> it's about time, I thought that this works out to my benefit. Now, we can laugh at that, but do you know what happened in my heart? I was immediately convicted that my attitude was wrong. In fact, it was sinful, that I was the one with bias, I was the one with prejudice. And if I got into that chair, I'd be no different than the people who discriminate against me. 
Now, I don't always do the right thing, but in that moment, I did, and I said, no, 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 she was here in front, in, in front of me. She should go first. Again, no one said anything overtly racist or discriminatory to that young white woman. But if I had gotten into that chair, I would have been guilty of discrimination and prejudice. In all three instances, service and kindness were withheld based upon external appearance, and that is discrimination. Now, the discrimination wasn't necessarily overt. Rather, it was most likely implicit bias that was taking place. And here's how the Kirwan Institute, a leading research organization on the study of race and ethnicity, here's how they define implicit bias. Implicit bias refers to the attitudes or stereotypes that affect our understanding, actions, and decisions in an unconscious manner. Implicit biases are activated involuntarily, unconsciously, and without one's awareness or intentional control. And research overwhelmingly shows that every one of us carries racial bias. That means every woman in this room carries racial bias. You do, and I do. Racial bias is so deeply embedded in our society, in our institutions, systems, and structures that we're often unaware of its presence and its effects. Each of us is biased. We all make assumptions about people. We see the world through our own narrow lens. The way we grew up, the, the stereotypes and stories that we learned from our families and cultures all affect, all influence how we view other people. In the kingdom of God, there is no room for discrimination, prejudice, or bias. There just isn't. And in this passage that you've been reading and studying all week, James 2, 1 to 13, here's what James is trying to teach us. Here's what he's trying to show us. Genuine faith does not discriminate. Genuine faith does not discriminate. James assumes we understand the gospel, and he's trying to show us what our lives will look like if we actually believe the gospel. And James says, if you believe the gospel, then you will not discriminate. And so this evening, what I'd like to do is to walk through this passage together and to share with you three insights. The warning, the reason, and the invitation. The warning that James gives us, the reason for the warning, and the invitation of Jesus. And then I'll close with a few practical applications for us. Make sense? See where we're going? Okay, let's go. James 2, verse 1. Here's, here's the warning. James 2, verses 1 to 4. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or, or sit by the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Right out of the gate, James gives us the warning. Followers of Jesus must not show favoritism, or a better word for that would be discrimination. Followers of Jesus must not discriminate. And he gives us this example of how a rich man and a poor man are treated in the church. And the rich man with his expensive clothes and gold ring is given the best seat in the house. And the poor man with his filthy clothes is told to go stand over there or go sit on the floor. And the word filthy in the Greek is a bit stronger. It means that this poor man is repulsive. 
He's disgusting. He's covered in filth and he stinks. There's a stark difference between the two men. So who would you rather sit next to in church? James is saying that followers of Jesus must not treat others differently based on ethnicity, age, socioeconomic class, education level, political affiliation, or whatever else we believe divides us. James says, don't discriminate. And throughout the Old Testament, we repeatedly see that, that God is impartial and that he looks at the heart and not at external appearance. And the people of God are to reflect his character. To be formed in the way of Jesus means that we don't believe that we're superior to others, nor do we believe that we're inferior to others. The gospel is about recognizing that we're all created in the image of God and thus equal to each other. Discriminating against people is inconsistent with true faith in Christ. Because if you do this, James says, you will become judges with evil thoughts. You will become judges who think wrongly. And most often, we're drawn to people who look like us, aren't we? People who, who share the same background or experiences as us. It's often just a whole lot more comfortable to be with people like that. I know that's true for me. I am drawn to people of color. I'm drawn to people who grew up on the East Coast. It's just easier for me to relate to them. And so what ends up happening is that our circles begin to look a lot like us. And the Bible says that the people of God are to live differently. So the warning is believers must not discriminate. And what I love about James is that he doesn't just give us a warning, he actually gives us the reason for the warning. And so here's the reason, picking up at verse five. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? When you discriminate, you dishonor God and you show that you don't truly believe the gospel. When you discriminate, you dishonor God and you show that you don't truly believe the gospel. Discrimination is wrong because it contradicts God's attitude and his gracious gift of salvation. When you discriminate, you dishonor God because you forget about his saving grace and you begin to think that you earned your own salvation. You and I are not saved by our effort and work. We are saved by Jesus' effort, by Jesus' work. It's hypocritical to discriminate. When you don't wanna be with a certain ethnicity or, or you don't wanna to talk to someone because of their social standing or their, their, uh, their financial standing, when you surround yourself with people or show favoritism to people who are like you, you're discriminating. You're actually acting in a way that is contrary to the heart of God. Because God looks at me and God looks at you and he says, you rebelled, you sinned, and with my son's life, I'm gonna save you, I'm gonna step in, I'm gonna rescue you. I'm gonna shower you with love and grace and compassion. I'm gonna bring you back into relationship with me so that you can once again be my daughter. So it's contrary to the gospel to discriminate. It dishonors God. And when God talks about the poor, the marginalized, the, the oppressed, he's serious about how we ought to view them and how we ought to treat them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Being poor in spirit means being humble and meek, which are positive characteristics in the kingdom of God. 
And God says, blessed are you who are poor, who have nothing, for you will depend on me for everything, and I will be your God. I will provide for you. You will experience my goodness, my faithfulness, my love and compassion. And so though you are poor in a worldly sense, you are rich in the eternal sense, and you are heirs of the kingdom of God. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about the rich. That's not what James is saying. What James is saying is that God delights to show his grace to those that the world has tossed aside. God delights to show his grace to those that the world has discarded, who who know how inadequate they are and how desperate they are, how much they need God. Let's go back to James 2, verse six. But you have dishonored the poor. Isn't that the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of of him to whom you belong? Here's what James is saying. He's giving us yet another reason. Not only does it dishonor God, but it dishonors the poor, those who are created in the image of God. And he says, what you're doing doesn't even make sense. It's the rich who are persecuting you believers. It's the rich who are speaking badly about God. Why would you favor them, James says? He's not saying don't be kind to the rich. Rather, he's saying, why would you give the rich undue honor at the expense of the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed? Genuine faith does not discriminate. Okay, so the warning is believers must not discriminate. The the reason is because it dishonors God and it dishonors those created in his image. Last week, one of the steps that Tiffany gave us was to read the book of James through the lens of invitation. And so here James gives us a warning, but it's also an invitation. So when you tell a toddler, don't cross the street by yourself, that's a warning, right? But it's also an invitation. It's an invitation to live. Don't cross the street by yourself because you will get hurt. (laughs) And so here James does the same thing. He gives us a warning and he gives us an invitation, which leads us to a better way, the way of Jesus. So here's the invitation, verse eight. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. The royal law is the heart and essence of how King Jesus tells us to live. Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. And even when he talks about this royal law, the example that he gives us is the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the Samaritan is the only one who shows compassion and comes to the aid of this wounded, helpless Jew who's who's laying on the side of the road. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They, They would have nothing to do with each other, yet this is how Jesus describes what it means to love your neighbor. Jesus extends love for your neighbor to all people, including those who are completely different from you. So James is saying that the people of God are to welcome people from all ethnicities, all social and economic classes, all educational levels, all political affiliations, all cultures into their community. Followers of King Jesus are to create an alternative society, a counterculture in which the values of the kingdom of God rather than the values of the world are lived out. So how are we doing? If you spend any time with me, you will often hear me say that the way of Jesus is the way of love and humility. And I say it often because I need to be reminded that King Jesus commands me to live differently than the world tells me to live, than often than my own flesh desires to live. Most days, I don't wanna love. I don't wanna be humble. 
Those two things don't come easily for me. I'm not sure they come easy for any of us. But Jesus calls us to live radically different than the world, to love the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable as we love ourselves, to love people who are so completely different than us. This is the way of Jesus. Picking back up at verse nine. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. But if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Here's what James is saying. Discrimination is the opposite of the royal law, the law of love. Discrimination is anti-gospel. So he tells us, if you're sitting here and and you're thinking, well, I show up to church, I'm in women's Bible study, I'm even a leader, I post Bible verses on Instagram, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't committed adultery, I'm a pretty good Christian, but yet you have discrimination in your heart, that's a really good indication that you don't believe the gospel, that you actually don't understand the gospel. James is saying, if you discriminate, you have broken the law. You don't want to, you don't have anything to do with a certain ethnicity. You turn your nose up to the poor. You have no compassion for them. You have broken the royal law. You have sinned. James is unrelenting because he's trying to break down all the lies that we so easily believe so that we could see the truth of the gospel. And he's not done yet. Verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James gets back to what he talked about in chapter one. Don't just listen to the word, do what it says. The goal of every disciple of Jesus is to be with Jesus so as to become like Jesus and then to carry on his work in the world. And part of being with Jesus, part of becoming like Jesus is that we actually obey Jesus. God's gracious acceptance of us does not mean that we don't have to obey him. Rather, because of God's love and grace, we are moved to obey him because his commandments are no longer threatening or confining or burdensome. We gladly obey out of love and gratitude to a God who has saved us, rescued us, who has given us a new identity. Listen to me, God is not after your begrudging submission. That's not what he wants from you. He wants your joyful obedience. True freedom, real freedom, is found in joyful obedience to King Jesus. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And James turns this around, he flips it, and he says, if you don't show mercy, God won't show you mercy. Mercy is not just a feeling of concern, it means much more than that. It means reaching out to show love to others. Genuine faith is merciful. So if you say, well, I trust Jesus and his mercy for me, and yet you refuse to show mercy to others, then you show you don't really believe the gospel. This is what James is saying. And so he ends with this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is saying, if a poor man dressed in filthy clothes who's repulsive and smelly comes into your gathering and you don't treat him with kindness and respect, you don't give him the seat next to you, you don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel is... You and I look like that to Jesus. Our righteousness was was as filthy rags to Jesus. 
You and I, our sin was repulsive to Jesus. When you and I discriminate, we show that we don't see how desperate we are for Jesus. You and I were poor in the eyes of Jesus, yet Jesus became poor for us. You and I were repulsive in the eyes of Jesus, yet Jesus became repulsive for us. Isaiah writes and he says that Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, that there was no beauty or majesty that would attract us to him, that Jesus was despised and rejected by humanity. Yet, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus became the poor man. Jesus became the repulsive, disgusting one for us. Jesus was judged so that we could experience mercy. And if you understand that, if you understand that, then you will not discriminate. You will be merciful. Remember God's mercy on your life. Remember who you were before Jesus saved you, before Jesus rescued you. And then as those who have experienced mercy, extend mercy to those around you. Genuine faith does not discriminate. The warning is believers must not discriminate. The reason is because it dishonors God and those who were made in his image. And the invitation is to live the better way. The way of Jesus is to love your neighbor as yourself. And for Jesus, your neighbor included people that were completely different from you. And in our context today, I think this is most vividly seen through the issue of racial inequality and discrimination. Racial wholeness and harmony begin in our own individual lives. We will never be able to see the inequality and, and the discrimination in our institutions and in our systems and structures if we have not first examined our own hearts. And so let me share with you three practical ways to do that. Here's the first one. We must be aware of our own implicit bias and confess this as sin. We dishonor God and those created in his image when we hold on to our bias. This is what James says. Each of us is biased. Whether you are a white woman or a woman of color, you are biased. We each carry implicit bias. We all make assumptions about people. We see the world through our own narrow lens, the way we grew up, the stories, the stereotypes that we heard from our families and cultures all influence how we view other people. And so we must constantly learn to examine our hearts and rid ourselves of these biases. In that moment, in that salon, I came face to face with my implicit bias towards white people. Some of my closest friends are white women. And yet, because of stereotypes that I grew up with, because of experiences that I've had, there's something in me that just immediately jumps to, I can't trust a white woman. And when that happens, I must recognize that for what it is, and it is sin. And I must bring that to Jesus. I must confess and repent of it. Listen to me, James is not saying that if you have bias or prejudice, you're not a Christian. None of us would be Christians then. We all have bias, that's not what James is saying. James is saying, if you don't recognize your bias, if you don't recognize your prejudice, and if you don't wrestle with it, if you don't do something about it, if you don't bring it to Jesus and confess and repent of it, you don't believe the gospel. We must be aware of our own implicit bias and confess it as sin. Here's a second application. We must develop deep relationships with people that are different than us. Again, this goes for every one of us, whether you are a white woman or a woman of color. Friends, diversity is not enough. Maybe we sit next to each other on Tuesdays or Sundays, 
but what about the rest of our days? We are formed by our relationships. We become like the people we spend time with. Your community forms you. So who do you have around your table? Who are you doing life with? There's beauty in truly knowing someone who's different than you. And we will never understand the fullness of God without deep relationships with those that are different than us. In fact, I would go as far as to say that if you don't have close relationships with those that are different than you, you will never understand the depth and the breadth of the gospel. It's impossible. Look around this room. Go ahead, look around this room. Look into the faces of the women in this room. There is so much beauty in this room, it's almost overwhelming. Every single one of you created in the image of God with immense dignity, matchless worth. Every single one of you. You don't have to go too far to develop a relationship with someone who's different than you. It's likely that woman is at your table. They're certainly in this room. Part of being in these relationships with those that are different than us is that we listen to each other even when it's hard. We, we don't try to fix, advise, or rescue. We don't minimize, we just listen. One of the things that I'm so grateful for is, is when things like what happened to me in that furniture store and that clothing store take place, and I tell my white friends about it, they don't try to explain it away. They don't say, surely they just didn't see you. Surely that's not what happened. That's not what they do. They listen to me, they see me, they acknowledge my pain and heart, they listen with empathy. And by doing so, they love me well. We must develop deep relationships with those that are different than us. Here's the third application. We must stand in unity with those who have been marginalized, oppressed, and discriminated against by lamenting and grieving injustice. We must stand up for people of color when they experience discrimination. We must learn to grieve and lament injustice when it takes place. Racial harmony and wholeness can never be a reality without us lamenting together. And lamenting is a very biblical idea. Two thirds of the Psalms are songs of lament. There's an entire book called Lamentations. In the practice of lamenting, we pour out our hearts to God and in turn, we receive grace to respond like Jesus. We lament out of righteous anger when we witness acts of injustice that are contrary to the wholeness and harmony of the kingdom of God. Just this weekend, we witnessed this in the killing of a young African-American woman, a Tatiana Jefferson, while she was in her own home and listen to me, this has nothing to do with what side I'm on. My brother is a police officer. This has everything to do with compassion and justice. Friends, we ought to lament and grieve her death. We ought to cry out for justice. I was reminded of this just a few weeks earlier to that, when I watched the trial of Amber Geiger, the white officer who killed Botham Jean, a black man who again was in his own home. In the sentencing phase of the trial, Brent John, the brother of Botham, hugged Amber and expressed his forgiveness. And white men and women who had made no mention of the injustice that had occurred in the death of an innocent man immediately took to social media to praise the act of forgiveness as a powerful demonstration of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And friends, here is where the practice of lament must come in. 
while it's true, we ought to praise the act of forgiveness. At the very same time, we ought to denounce the injustice that has taken place. We must be people who do both. Because Jesus is our resurrected king, we can both marvel at a beautiful act of forgiveness while at the very same time lament and grieve the tragic and unjust death of an innocent man. This is how we stand in unity with brothers and sisters who have been wronged and violated. We lament and grieve injustice together. Genuine faith does not discriminate because it dishonors God and it dishonors those created in his image. And the invitation of Jesus is to live the better way. The way of Jesus is to love your neighbor as yourself. And for Jesus, your neighbor included people who were completely different from you. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ created one new humanity, a diverse, multi-ethnic community. The church is the multi-ethnic bride of Christ, the one he loved and gave his life for. And Jesus calls us, Jesus calls the church to be a subversive countercultural movement that turns the world's values upside down. To be formed in the way of Jesus means we do not believe that we're superior to others, nor do we believe that we're inferior to others. There is only one who's superior in the kingdom of God, and it's King Jesus. He alone is lifted up, he alone is worthy of our praise. And when we live such countercultural lives, when we examine our hearts for bias and confess this as sin, when we develop deep relationships with those who are different than us, when we stand in unity with those who've been discriminated against by lamenting and grieving injustice, we display the power, the wonder, the beauty of the gospel that will cause the world to stop and take notice, that will cause the world to say, there's a better way. There's the way of Jesus. Friends, this is the gospel. This is who we are called to be. This is the way of Jesus. Genuine faith does not discriminate. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you have shown us through the gift of your son. And God, I ask that you would help us to be women who extend that mercy to those around us. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to be open to what you have to say to us. Help us to examine our hearts for bias. Help us to reflect your kingdom by developing deep relationships with those that are different than us. Help us to stand in unity with those who have been discriminated against by lamenting and grieving injustice. God, we long for the wholeness and harmony of your kingdom. So may your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And may it begin in our own lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.